0: The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Michael Bolick, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Will Harris, and Craig. everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for March 3rd, 2021. It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young, joining you yet again from Oakland, California. Big show this week. We, we've got a lot in the fire here. Number one, the heat rising yet again. On Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York. Uh, if you are a member of our $3 club, you heard me rack up all of the scandal stuff that had happened over the weekend. My point then was it's never the last thing, it's always the next thing. Well, Monday night, we got the next thing. We will talk about what has happened. Where it will go from here. And yes, I got a little something for CNN and Chris Cuomo. Also, is there a brewing border crisis for Joe Biden? Axios has a scoop that, according to the White House, they might be girding for one. And... As I record this on Tuesday afternoon, Chris Ray, the head of the FBI, is testifying for the January 6th hearings. He's got some very specific language that I'm not particularly in love with, specifically into the idea of domestic terror. You guys know that I am out and out paranoid. That we are going to get a new Patriot Act. And I didn't like I didn't like some of these words. I'm going to share those words with you. And finally, we are going to have Andrew Heaton back on the show. He's going to talk about minimum wage and specifically how the dialogue on minimum wage has gone uh, when he covered it on his podcast last week. It as always is a great and fun conversation. Bang! Before
1: we start tonight, uh, let me say something that I'm sure is very obvious to you who watch my show, and thank you for that. You're straight with me, I'll be straight with you. Obviously, I'm aware of what's going on with my brother. And obviously, I cannot cover it because he is my brother. Now, of course, CNN has to cover it. They have covered it extensively, and they will continue to do so. I have always cared very deeply about these issues, and profoundly so. I just wanted to tell you that.
0: That is CNN primetime anchor Chris Cuomo, brother of Andrew Cuomo, on his show Monday night after new details and accusations came forth about the governor of the Empire State. I'm going to do my media rant at the end, but I wanted to lead in with that because (laughs) I got something. I got something. That's going to be my big finale. Let's go over the facts here first. Over the weekend, if you are not following this, Andrew Cuomo dealt with a rising tide. And let's actually reset this to really the release of his book. Because nothing has gone right for this man since he put out a book about how good he handled the COVID crisis. He puts out that book. All of a sudden, COVID cases rise. Now... I don't blame Andrew Cuomo for that. I believe that there's a seasonality to the COVID-19 virus. I believe that there are elements that make New York a place where it is going to happen, both between the uh, uh, density of people and also the climate. But facts are facts are facts. Book comes out and all of a sudden the cases rise. And so now you've got some questions because throughout the spring and the summer, there have been a lot of lockdowns that were put down throughout the, the state. That's going to chafe. Whether or not you agree with it, whether or not you think it's right, the issues with the schools, the issues with the businesses, the issues with employment, the issues with crime, they're going to chafe. These are the costs of doing something for a greater uh, health of, of, of the populace. Nothing comes calorie-free in this world, especially when you're dealing with decisions like this. So the bill kind of comes due on some of that. And then the personal stuff pops up. First, a series of tweets after Cuomo is floated as being part of the uh, Biden administration saying that Cuomo sexually harassed one of his aides. That came back to light two weeks ago when that same woman wrote a Medium post about it. What happened over the weekend was something further. Because another aide came out, and again, two, on the record, verifiably employed with Cuomo. This is not a random, oh, well, uh, this was at a party, and maybe they were there, maybe they weren't there. This isn't off the record. Two, on the record, verifiably close to Cuomo women, came out and said, ...that they were sexually harassed. Both followed a similar pattern. Cuomo's over-familiar. He makes comments and jokes that both women took to be flirting... ...and or an invitation to begin a sexual relationship with him. And now is when the heat really starts to rise... The Biden administration says there should be a uh, a, 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 a independent investigation. AOC says there should be an independent investigation. People within Cuomo's own party in New York say there need to be an independent investigation. Let's put a pin in there real quick because another thing that led to all this coming to fruition was a member of Cuomo's own party in New York saying that Cuomo's bullying is so intense that the governor of the state called a member of his own party and threatened to destroy him. All right, so just add that as a little garnish on the side of this this, this scandal plate we're preparing. It's at this point that Cuomo does the thing you never want to do in a crisis because you don't have a whole lot of moves past this. And that is, join the mob that's calling for your own head. So Cuomo does exactly that. And he puts out this statement and he says, I am going to issue a full independent investigation into me. He then reframes things. And he says, obviously, I didn't mean these things the way that these women took them. I was only making a joke. But most specifically, he moved the goalposts on one specific issue. And I want to say this verbatim. To be clear, he writes, I have never inappropriately touched anybody, and I never propositioned anybody. I never intended to make anyone feel uncomfortable, but these are allegations that New Yorkers deserve the answers to. So, you don't got to be a, 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 a PhD in crisis management to know that what he is saying right there is A, more women might come out and say that I made jokes. We're allowing that. But the new line is I have never inappropriately touched anybody and I never propositioned anybody. Within 24 hours from Matt Flegenheimer and Jesse McKinley of the New York Times, we read verbatim, Anna Ruck had never met Governor Andrew M. Cuomo before encountering him at a crowded New York City wedding reception in September 2019, but her first impression was positive enough. The governor was working the room, toasting the newlyweds when he came upon Miss Ruck, now 33. She thanked him for his kind words about her friends, but what happened next instantly unsettled her. Mr. Cuomo put his hand on Miss Ruck's bare lower back, she said in an interview on Monday. When she removed his hand with her own, Miss Ruck recalled the governor remarked that she seemed aggressive and placed his hands on her cheeks. He asked if he could kiss her loudly enough for a friend standing nearby to hear. Miss Ruck was bewildered by the entreaty, she said, and pulled back away as the governor drew closer. So, less than 24 hours ago, Cuomo sets the new goalposts at, I have not inappropriately touched a woman, and I have not propositioned a woman, and within a day, we get a story of him inappropriately touching and propositioning. Now, I'm sure that when Cuomo's PR team was crafting that, what they meant to say was, no, I mean, I never grabbed her by her genitals or her breasts and I never propositioned somebody saying like, hey, let's go screw. But that's why it's never the last thing. It's the next thing. Because we've already blown right past the firewall that they set up over the weekend. And now you've got some members of the New York Democratic Party that are out and out calling for the man to resign. Now, let's be realistic. The people that have called for him to resign are members of the of the more socialist wing of the Democratic Party. New York is, for all intents and purposes, kind of a one-party state. So there's there's a big swath of Democrats. But still, the heat is rising. I don't believe that the heat can rise hot enough to take out Andrew Cuomo. That's an old name in Democratic politics. It would take a lot of embarrassment for him to want to step aside. It might happen. You never know. I mean, times are changing but... That is some old guard stuff. The Cuomos in New York have been around for a very long time, and they have seeped into every element of the traditional power structure, including Chris, which brings us back to how we came in. In case you are new to this program, let me make this caveat. I don't like television news. It's something that was was taught to me as a very young boy coming up through the newspaper ranks. It is a bias for which I will carry to my grave. It's the way I was raised. So I will be uncharitable to CNN. But even, even by television news standards, Chris Cuomo saying that he can't talk about his brother's scandal is an embarrassment even by the playpen comedy hour that is CNN that is an embarrassment if you can't talk about the news of the day then you need to not do your show And this is doubly ridiculous, considering the fact that Chris and Andrew Cuomo were the famous brother prop comedy team during the worst parts of this pandemic when New York State was in the process of racking up the highest deaths per capita, despite the fact that they are the fourth largest state in the union. They are objectively doing the worst. And I know that they got hit earliest, but I also know that it is... Cuomo's dysfunctional relationship with Bill de Blasio and I blame both of them for that that helped cause this issue there was no cohesion between state and city it's not a a newsflash to anybody that New York uh, City was going to be a a a place where this was going to be worse than other places. And by the way, Bill De Blasio, side note, can hardly contain his erection as he now calls for for Cuomo to resign. Those two hate each other. But I'm getting back to Chris. No, I'm getting back to Chris. This is ridiculous. Let's just go ahead back to last year to see the kinds of Andrew Cuomo related topics that were in bounds for Chris Cuomo and CNN. Can't talk about this scandal, right? Oh my, obviously can't talk about this scandal. So what Andrew Cuomo related topics are in bounds? Here's a little highlight reel we put together. Good break, because
1: if you're not gonna answer questions, I am going to have to reset. I thought there'd be a little bit more transparency for the audience. I'll put it to them online. You know, this is the regular swab. This is what we're told disappeared in the governor's nose. And then we were told that this is what it took. I you. I'm proud of what you're doing. I know you're working hard for your state, but no matter how hard you're working, there's always time to call mom. She wants to hear from you. Just so you know. Yeah, I called mom. I called mom it's just not before I came that. on this show. It's not what By she the said. way, she said I was her favorite. She never said Good that. news is, she said you were her second favorite. He said, Andrew has tremendous he capability. He, he is blessed in many ways, but he's got hands like bananas, and he can't play ball. Everybody knows it. Just saying. Put the money on the a great table, job, up, and I'll take you out a great job, though. and spank you. Last night, I was doing what I do for my family, which is make my mother's sauce. She taught me how to make the sauce. Uh, yeah, that's no, what happened. you've always been good at manipulation. You've always been good at manipulation. You've always been the meatball of the family. Are you thinking about running for president? Tell the audience. No, no, no. You won't answer? No, I answered. The answer is no.
0: No, you're not thinking about Sometimes
1: it? Sometimes it's one word. I said no. Have no. you thought about it? No. Are you open to thinking about it? No. Might you think about it at some point? No. How can you know what you might think about at some point right now? Yeah. Some say I shouldn't come on this show because you harass me. Too much fierce accountability? And provoke me. Can't take I- it? Want to pat and, on the back? And, no, no, Love goes. It's, pers- it's ad hominem, ad hominem attacks. Don't speak Spanish Ellen- on my show. False. Do you think False. that you are an attractive person now because you're single and ready to mingle? Do you really think you are some desirable single person and that this is not just people's pain
0: think, coming out of them?
1: I think yeah, beauty is in the eye of the beholder.
0: So, just for those playing our home game, inbounds. For the famous comedy team, the Cuomo brothers on CNN is if Andrew Cuomo thinks he's handsome, who can win in a basketball game, who makes the best version of mother's sauce, whether or not Andrew has called his mother and pumping up a possible run for president by Andrew Cuomo. Oh, and whether or not Andrew has a big nose. That's probably the most famous one. But it's more of a visual bit. Inbounds. That's all allowed. When CNN looks at that, they're like, absolutely, let's make sure. Let's let's pump it up. Let's get it out there. Let's have these two on camera as much as possible. But the second that something negative happens, no, oh my. I, I obviously can't cover him because he's my brother. Oh. Interesting. I didn't know there was those rules there. And you want to know why? Do you want to know why he can't cover his brother there? It's because he really doesn't care about his CNN show. He that's a thing to do. He cares about it the way that most people care about their day jobs. Sure, he wants to do it well. He cares about professional pride. But if he really cared about that show, then, of course, he would do nothing but talk about his brother. He would erode that obviously tender tendril between him and his family for the benefit of his viewing audience. That's what people have to do in access journalism all the time. All the time they have to mortgage those relationships. But no. He doesn't really care. He's royalty. He's American royalty. In that sphere. In that New York sphere. He's a Cuomo. And that's why I don't think that Andrew's going anywhere. Because they feel that safe. Imagine. Imagine when you could be the most watched thing in prime time. You say, no, I can't, obviously when it's that hypocritical, when it's that stark in relief to what you just spent the last year doing. I mean, come on politics, politics. All right, we're gonna file this one under keep an eye on it. keep an eye on it. In fact, I want to flash back to when we were having our conversations about the first 100 days. Why the first 100 days matter? And what I told you guys then was that the first 100 days matter because it is the first time you have an absence of things happening. The longer you go into a presidency, the more things happen. And the more things happen, the more they stack up. And the more they stack up, the less you are able to move agilely. And so when I was talking during the impeachment and I was saying, hey, those two weeks, man, they are really valuable. Those are the most pure weeks of not stuff happening that you're going to get. Things are going to keep piling up. You know, this is the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. There is an issue on the southern border. Biden faced criticism within his own party for opening up a migrant detention center largely because Donald Trump got raked over the coals during his administration about kids in cages. Who's putting the kids in cages? Why are there kids in cages? And Trump supporters said either, well, they're crossing illegally, or we didn't build these. These were built under the Obama administration. And so now... The Biden administration is beginning to get some heat for their behavior on the southern border, and it might get worse. This is a scoop from Steph Kite of Axios. There is a circulated briefing going around the Biden White House that 20,000 child migrant beds are being ordered because there is a rapid influx of unaccompanied children on the border. Department of Homeland Security is currently projecting there will be 117,000 unaccompanied child migrants crossing the border this year. And there are schools of thought that say that this is a larger-than-usual influx because of relaxed rules on the border between Trump and Biden. So... A a pent-up demand being met. Meanwhile, you've got the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, who said from the White House podium to the assembled journalists that the current situation is not a crisis. Although the president will be told in the briefing found by Axios that the number of migrant kids is on pace to exceed the all-time record By 45%. So, the question would then become, if that's not a crisis, then what is? I'm not saying that it is right now. I'm just saying what Axios found the Biden administration telling themselves. Keep an eye. Because stuff might be afoot. That attack...
2: That siege was criminal behavior, plain and simple, and it's behavior that we, the FBI, view as domestic terrorism.
0: That is FBI Director Chris Wray on Tuesday opening his uh, portion of a hearing into the January 6th storming of the Capitol, the Capitol riots. I just, I, 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 I have a, I have, I have this, this gut reaction, man. I've got this knee-jerk reaction, dude, about the idea of domestic terrorism where we're not putting very stringent definitions on it because I was horrified by the Capitol riots. I, I, I think that they crossed... A a, a gigantic line. And we do need to prosecute each and every person that went in there. But. It. That. The storming of the Capitol. Looked like a. Demonstration that went. Too far. To me. It looked like a, a demonstration that went too far. Now. There was an attempted bombing of the RNC and the DNC that that to me is domestic terrorism. You are deliberately going out there, but I'm going to have to see a connection between those two things spelled out before I say that these are all connected. Now, did they share an ideology? Sure. I'm more than willing to do that, but... I can't help but view this in the context of further legislation, in the context of a new Patriot Act, in the context of tools that the FBI will ask for to solve this going forward. And so I, I just want to be particular here in this run-up before we start talking about the bill itself, before we start talking about Whatever examples are around when this bill kind of comes to the fore. I just want to say right now that I followed this fairly closely, the, the, the January 6th stuff. I've read a, a fair amount. I mean, hell, we put together a timeline on this podcast about AOC's story that, to my knowledge, pointed out something that nobody else was talking about. And that's the fact that she was evacuated out of her office, not because of people storming the Capitol, but because of the bombing or the the fact that they found a bomb. Based on my piecing together that timeline, that's why she got rushed out. I've tried to do my due diligence on this. Best I can tell in my internet research, despite the fact that there is a $100,000 reward uh, put out by the FBI to find the bomber, we don't have an arrest there. So if we don't have an arrest, and we don't have evidence—at least publicly known. Like I, 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 I just need eyes dotted and t's crossed as we move into a phase that might require us to forfeit civil liberties if we are named domestic terrorists. And as Ray went on to say during his opening. Uh, remarks there that they would be put at the highest level of domestic enforcement, including ISIS, right? If you're going to get put on the same level as ISIS, I just kind of want a, a very easy to understand layout of who is a domestic terrorist and who is isn't, Because if we don't, and we're leaving a lot up to interpretation i just don't think we're going to like who interprets who as what cuz i'll tell you what if there was domestic terror legislation on the books a year ago when trump was in and the uh, stuff was happening throughout america and and you were having uh, the 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 kind of violence that we had in portland and seattle and and Wisconsin and everything, do you think he wouldn't have used it? Do you think he wouldn't have deemed that domestic terrorism? I don't know, man. I just, I get the, the hair on the back of my neck stands up as soon as we start talking about it. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you one more month in the bank supporting independent political analyst Justin Robert Young. This program has allowed us to uh, expand a little bit. We're changing things up. You can support us directly. At dot That brings you to our Patreon. You get our our three dollar level, and in turn you get our custom RSS feed. That's direct to you. Put it in the podcatcher of your choice. You get a bonus podcast on Monday, a bonus podcast on Thursday. That's double your PX three pleasure. The bang for your buck. But we also want to expand the things around here as we move in to the Biden era. And part of that is changing up how we do our free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. They used to be so small. So small. Just tiny little nuggets. A news digest, if you were. But now, oh, very, very, very substantial, this free political newsletter. It's coming out on Sundays. You can read a Monday morning, but it is basically my week's worth of thoughts. And this first edition of the new and improved free political newsletter was gargantuan. It was great. I loved it. And it seems like you guys really dig it too. Now's the time to get on board free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com I'm actually doing writing now and uh, 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 so far it has been great including my new guide on how to read the news this is something that you guys have asked me for indirectly You know, it's just been in in emails and tweets and stuff like that forever but for you guys for whatever reason like When I get into pedantic journalism conversation and I'm doing that weekly here, I'm going to have just a story I read and and try to break down kind of like my perspective. So in this edition of the uh, Free Political Newsletter, what I did was I took an article that was a news article and I explained why it should be an opinion piece. And, and use that as a way to get into the idea of news versus opinion. Because a lot of people talk about that, but they use very simplistic examples of like, this is a notice that a school's closed. This is a Bill O'Reilly monologue. They're not the same. And I know, I feel like people have said that enough. I got a little second level on that. Hopefully you guys do. Go check it out. Free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Our guest today is no stranger to the program. In fact, I've taken to randomly cold calling him on our (laughs) on our bonus episodes. He is the host of The Political Orphanage. He is Andrew Heaton. It is always a pleasure, Justin. Thank you for having me back. I wanted to talk to you about a a big issue that uh, uh, dominated the news last week. And I think that you did a, a a great episode on on your podcast, The Political Orphanage, and that is the minimum wage. So uh, thank you uh, uh, with 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 the caveat that everybody is now, legally required to go at least download that episode, if not listen to it, uh, can you summarize your position on the minimum wage?
2: Yes. Um, Increasing the minimum wage is a very good intention, but you shouldn't look at intentions. You should look at the outcome. And the outcome of doubling the federal minimum wage across the entire country would be to massively increase unemployment, And the quick example I can give of that is that Puerto Rico, which is subject to federal law because it's part of the United States, would have a $15 minimum wage despite having a Caribbean economy. And that would be the equivalent. They've calculated this. $15 an hour in Washington, D.C. is the equivalent of $68 an hour in Puerto Rico. So imagine like the Dominican Republic or, or Puerto Rico. I, I realize they all have different things, but imagine a poorer part of the world having a $68 minimum wage. That's what we're talking about. And, and that same thing holds true throughout the country. Arkansas would be about $25 an hour because there are different rates of labor. There are different, uh, different levels of affluence and levels of cost of living across the country. Having one big $15 an hour minimum wage would be very, very problematic across the country and being able to absorb that. And then you 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 couple that with the fact that restaurants and hotels are struggling right now to exist. Doubling the cost of their labor would just shut them all down, which brings me to my final point. The ultimate minimum wage is zero. That's the, the There always is a zero hour minimum wage because if you price labor too high, you put businesses out and then nobody gets money. The person you're trying to help is out of money. The business owners out of money, nobody's helped by that situation. And in a $15 minimum wage, like let's, we can talk about $8 in Mississippi or something, right? But $15 an hour across the country would have been disastrous. And I think for anybody looking at it rationally from an economic perspective, it was insane. It was a it was a nice intention, very passionate, but but the actual application of that specific policy would have been nuts.
0: So the current Federal minimum wage is, is seven dollars and change, right? Yeah, 7,
2: seven twenty-five an hour is the current federal minimum wage. About about half the states in the union uh, have higher state uh, minimum wages than that, but the federal minimum wage is seven twenty-five.
0: And we we saw the the parliamentarian in in the Senate say that this was something that uh, uh, was was not matching the bird rule. So we we don't have that particular. Uh, a deadline on this issue looming over us although we have seen some bipartisan proposals on this including Ryan. Tom cotton and Mitt Romney who said all right well let's take it from 725 to 10 on a a, a sliding scale that will kick in after the pandemic. but uh, we also want to tie it to e-verify. Which basically mm. confirms your birth certificate, just beyond your your driver's license, uh, uh, to ensure that you are a United States citizen. Basically, making this a a populist issue about immigration as well. I, I presume that this is something that delights you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. y- yes. Absolutely. Uh, he, you said, the he, theme said, theme? he said. He I, said. He said
0: sarcastically. I, I, I,
2: I, I have I have uh, you know I, I have really grown to, to like Mitt Romney over the last few years and, and I, I think he is a very decent guy and uh, and I, I think um, I would love it if the Republican Party would model itself after him because I think he's got a lot of really good elements to him um, That proposal is in my mind horrible Now I'll say when dealing with the minimum wage I, I try to keep myself Based based in, in math and economics, I, I try not to get sidetracked by ideological arguments because I think a lot of the time it's easy to end up just debating principles, and those are a lot harder and a lot less convincing. And so, it, for me, it's better to go look, eat, like, if if you think the concept of the minimum wage is a good one, but you agree we could price we could price labor too high, which by the way, every single person with the slightest bit of rational thought or economic knowledge will acknowledge, yes, we could price it too high. $100 per hour would be too high, right? This is Then $15 an hour hits that threshold for sure nationally, right? That said, uh, I hated the Romney and Cotton proposal uh, because to get into the values a little bit, um, I, I like the idea that you can form consenting relationships with whoever you want as long as they're adults and they're consenting. So if you want to have sex with somebody, and you're both dudes, that's your right. You can totally do that. I stand behind you a thousand percent. I
0: mean, look, you I I, I think I think Romney and Cotton are co sponsors on this, but that's breeding a little bit into it, isn't it?
2: Oh right, right right yeah no no that'd be great i would love it if it turned out they were dating no no but, but but the flip side of that the thing that we forget a lot of the time is i think a lot of people that are really really in favor of like yeah you could be able to have sex with whoever you want i'm like well i i feel that same that same consenting adult kind of association applies economically as well so if if, if i decide i want to hire somebody and they want to work for me I'm fine with that. And I, and I'll, this is where I, I put on like my, like, yay America hat. Like, it's your business. You can hire whoever you want. Like, that includes immigrants. I don't, I, I don't care. I don't think that the government should be doing it. The government should be, I think, playing a role protecting us from miscreants who, who might come in and either have diseases or are criminals or whatever. Like, that's, that's what, you know, we need a border, that kind of thing, yes. But in terms of who you hire, like, it's your business. Hire whoever you want. I, I don't, I don't like that at all. And, and I, I, I think we should be, figuring out ways to enfranchise immigrants and be pro-immigrant and bring in more labor and bring in, you know, more people and that I think people are good. And so this this kind of, well, we'll we'll meet you halfway on minimum wage if you basically give us these anti-immigrant sentiments. I'm like, well, let's OK. No, this is also well but, but
0: this I mean, and in, in defense of the philosophy there, this is about as economic an argument as you can possibly frame immigration. Right, with, with with the idea being that there is a a society for which plays by a set of rules, including minimum wage, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are unscrupulous businessmen and and exploited worker class that will go beyond that. And and what you want to do is try to tie these issues together and uh, uh you know stand up for those workers who are working. Legally here like. Right.
2: And I, and, and and to to um, the, the argument that I suspect Mr. Romney and Cotton and for that matter, Bernie Sanders, as of four years ago, would have all proffered were that uh, if someone like me actually believes in supply and demand and thinks that that is. Uh, a law which affects everything, uh, and I think that it applies to labor, why would I not think that having cheap labor coming in would, would also reduce the, the, the demand for it? Why, why, if, if we're going to flood the market with cheap immigrant labor, why wouldn't that lower wages all over the board? Which, fair point. Uh, I, I will say that there's a concept called labor lump fallacy, um, so this is the idea that when we bring immigrants in, they they tend to offset the uh, the effect of dropping the floor. Um, so the, the 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 net economy is not just that everybody's wages drop. But I I get it. I see where they're coming from. It's a, it's a, like like it's actually one of those things that, that um, people kind of forget about um, Sanders. Sanders. Was Sanders yeah. was an immigration restrictionist for a long time? I don't think that he's a bigot. I don't think that he's xenophobic. I think Sanders is I think a very open hearted guy. But
0: he, he was, was also he was, was also, also 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 pro gun for a while.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was pro gun for a very like, up until literally this election. He was very pro gun, and he would just, uh, you know, the, the people of Vermont believe that the guns are a part of the thing, and we don't have a problem in Vermont. I represent And he would kind of demur. Yeah. Um, yeah. For 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 a very long time, he was an immigration restrictionist because he saw that as uh, the you know the the capitalists inviting in cheap labor to flood the market to underbid the American worker, and I suppose that's what Romney and Cotton are doing. We're trying to safeguard against, I should say.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you think we see a raise on the federal minimum wage in the next four years?
2: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The the so I I'm I'm in the minority here. Of, yeah, but, like, put on like, put
0: on put on your prognosticator cap.
2: Yeah. Um. So here, okay. Let Let's make three groups of people in this equation. Uh, people who want to help the poor and think minimum wage is a great way to do that. A, a group of people that want to help the poor and think minimum wage is counterproductive and a group of people that think if you just worked harder, you'd quit being poor. So quit belly aching, right? Yeah. Um, I, I am very firmly in that middle camp of like, like – like at the beginning of the episode you mentioned that, that I do. To, to me, this argument – the argument that I keep having with people is it, it's like I'm talking to somebody and they're like, cancer is horrible, Cancer is so horrible. And I'm like, I agree. And they're like, that's why we should have free Advil for everybody with cancer so we can cure cancer. And I go, "Uh, hold on. I'm with you on cancer being bad. I don't think the Advil would solve the problem. And they go, Andrew, you are very privileged. You're a college-educated guy. You're successful. You don't understand how bad cancer is. If you understood how bad cancer is, you would understand why we need Advil. And I go right again. I'm because not because by the way, by you. the way,
0: it's the least you could do. The least you could do. The least is, I could do. The yeah, least it, you it, could do it, is give these people Advil.
2: Right, and I'm going look. look I, I don't. Y- you think we're arguing about whether poverty is bad or whether we should help people? I am not in disagreement with you on any of those points. I would me the evil limited government guy. I would raise taxes on you and me in order to have UBI. I I I think that there is a commonwealth element to government i concur on all of these things the plan you have is a very bad one because it's going to have a net impact on reducing businesses on reducing the amount of jobs that exist people are going to get disenfranchised from the system they're not going to be able to get a foot in the door bad stuff right but but that is a much much harder argument to make it's a lot more complex to make that it's it's much easier to make the argument of that guy needs money give him money that like that like like that guy's not getting paid enough order people to pay him more that's an easy argument. That's, that's a, a very simple argument, and it's an argument that emotionally resonates with people because most people are kind-hearted, right? And so it, it does resonate with people. It's much, much harder to go, hi, I agree with you. Here is why the logic does not work, right? That's a harder thing to do. And the, the, uh, uh, the, uh, um, the polls are stacked against me. Uh, the, the, the latest Pew research has 67% of the American public in favor of increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Now that is, um, very much, uh, along partisan lines. Um, I think 40% of Republicans are in favor of increasing the minimum wage, but 60% are not. Um, I, I think independents are kind of scattered, but I've not looked at that data as much. Uh, Democrats are, are almost unanimously in favor of it. They're very, very much in favor of increasing the minimum wage. Regardless though. Uh, I don't think I don't think the the kind of from from my perspective, kind hearted adults in the room are going to be able to have a moderating effect on the very passionate people who are more concerned about trajectory and intent than on outcome. Uh, And so the the, the cards are stacked against us. Furthermore, I don't think I don't know. Granted, the Republican polling right now is not in favor of the minimum wage, but the people that are leading the Republican Party at the moment aren't aren't really economists anymore or principled conservatives or anything else. They're just they just kinda want to own the libs and and they're increasingly xenophobic. There's a lot of there's a lot of elements in the Republican Party that are not going to have that old like George H. W. Bush armchair elbow patch, let's look at data type thing. That's that's on the way out. So I, I could see this kind well, of thing I mean, that Romney Ra- 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 and Cotton are doing of of like, well, what if we pair it with populism? What if we pair it with anti-immigrant sentiment? Because a lot of the people, you know, a lot of the Republicans that are in the base aren't opposed to state programs and things like that. They're, like, they're, they're complex. There's a lot of yeah. people in West Virginia who are, they're Republicans and they're very anti-immigrant, but they they like kind of FDR New Deal type programs. So there's a lot of people like that. So I I think that you're going to see a kind of that's going to come in th- through this path here somewhere. That's going to get pushed by the Democrats, or there's going to be Republican concessions that allow it to happen. So it'll it'll definitely increase in the next few years.
0: I'm I was I was shocked throughout this process that the Republicans. They are so out of sorts. They don't really know exactly where they want to go. There is this divide of the ye olde versus yee haw kind of mm-hmm. a pop, you know, country club or, or dive bar sort of dichotomy that I think that they really missed and I, I mean, and, and or are missing currently this moment to reframe what it means to be a pro business conservative. Right. But mm-hmm. as we see so many businesses on the ropes, right. That you, in especially in certain uh, larger cities, like I know for, for me, you, when, when you were out here, I take the same walk on Fridays, every mm-hmm. Friday. Yeah. Right. And it's like, you know, four or five miles. And I have watched on that walk businesses die, shutter, reopen, die and now they're reopening as other businesses hoping that right. they're going to be able to uh you know get a get a head start on the way out i feel like this was a moment and and minimum wage is a great issue that uh, they could say hey look like this is the democrats coming to kill the small businesses that they couldn't already kill during lockdown uh because i think the idea of being a pro-business conservative in the past was something that's like kind of cold and bloodless and, and like, right. Oh, you're just supporting these, you know, sky creatures that write yeah, checks. You're, you're the,
2: the the Mr. Burns Republicans of, of old. Yeah,
0: exactly. Where it's like, now I think things are a lot more visceral, but then again, the Republicans can't get their They, they, they can't get anything together. And also I, I feel like they're, they're trapped in this position where the Democrats said, we don't need you. And so now they don't want to do anything. Anything that could help the Democrats come together more or make anything more or less popular than they're going to do on their uh, mm-hmm. on, on their own because if they fail, that's the best thing for the Republicans, right? It's like like you you, you scorned our help and then you also fell uh, on your face, which doesn't look like it's going to happen now. So they basically just went through, you know uh, two months of the first 100 days without any kind of coherent economic message
2: yes all of this sounds true to me i'll add i think that the republicans have also lost a little bit of their credibility like i I heard after i did my my episode on minimum wage this is a a quick side note i was amazed at how uh, open-minded and kind everybody was in in dealing with that issue normally something that's high uh, you know uh uh High emotion ends up kind of bringing out the worst in people. I found like this particular issue. I was I was so impressed. Multiple people reached out and were uh, one of the listeners of your show. Uh, there, was great, a, a, a there was a back, great there was a great
0: one. Back yeah, there was a great back and forth between you and and Volkai, I believe his name. Volkai, was. Yeah, 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 and uh, he well, yeah, uh, like, like sh- sh- yeah shout shout
2: out to Vol- oh, I'm sorry I interrupted you.
0: Please no no back. no. It was just great because it was very loud. Initially, where it's like I'm unsubscribing, screw you, you uh, 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 a hole, and then like it never got any less loud, but it did get more polite as the te- <laughs> as, as the tweet trade. It's like I'm listening whoa, now. Whoa. I'm really <laughs> enjoying these nuanced points. We, we, have, we need to give him a
2: like. You need to give him due credit, though. He said, "Uh, uh like I, I think he said something i like, 'I've never unsubscribed from a podcast in two decades, but I'm, i I'm, I'm going to unsubscribe from Heaton because he's opposed to minimum wage.' I'm going to go ahead and listen to this episode, but I, you know, I'm on my way out." And I, I was like. I, I, like, I was duly impressed. I was like, I am so impressed that this is such like you You so fundamentally disagree with my position, but you're willing to hear it out. Yeah. It's like, man, I wish there were more people like that in America. I so wish there were people that were passionate, but were like, but I will hear you out. And, uh, and he sent me, we had, we had a nice email exchange. Uh, and, and that was my experience with a lot of the things. So some of the things that people brought up to me where they were very skeptical of Republicans and their position on minimum wages, they would bring up that um, Republicans will be opposed to minimum wage. Uh, and very much in favor of states' rights and local control, but then in their state, they'll pass laws prohibiting a city from having increased minimum wage. So like St. Louis, for example, I, I, I think St. Louis is an example where Missouri is like St. Louis cannot raise its minimum wage. And, I, and I'm like – they have a point there. Like I, I'm, For the record, I think it's probably better to err on the side of – I, I do. I think it's better to err on the side of caution. I don't think that minimum wage will be a great idea. But if you're going to claim to be the party of local control and letting people decide their own things at, at the smallest geographic level possible, if you're going to preempt that whenever it bucks your, your economic narrative, then you can't it, – it's harder to claim that that whole local control type thing. Um, and to your other point about um, them – the Republicans being able to craft a coherent economic narrative, yeah, I, I, I think – All of that is part of this broader problem we have right now where any legislation we pass is by the skin of its teeth and entirely along partisan lines, and that is not a good way to run a country. Uh, If you go back to, say, the 60s, I mean, you did a a, a fantastic job on Raise the Dead uh, from from beginning to end on it, and you you, you touch on the the Civil Rights Act and what's going on there. You touch on the Rockefeller Republicans and all that kind of stuff. When the Civil Rights Act passed in 1963— um, even though Goldwater tends to be the kind of thing people think of in terms of Republicans, what effectively happened was there was a civil there was a civil war in the Democratic Party over whether or not the Civil Rights Act should pass. Yep. And Republicans were the tiebreaker that went in favor of it. And proportionally, there were more Republicans in favor of it than Democrats. And that tends to be what happens through most of the post-war period in American history, where if there's a big program, the Republicans and Democrats would meet up they'd they'd negotiate, they'd come up with a joint plan that would have a majority of people from both parties involved in it. And the effect that that has uh, is at least a sense of continuity to the governance. Because when the Democrats lose power and the Republicans come in, they've now got skin in the game, they've had a hand in that pot, they're going to try and fix it as opposed to destroy it. Whereas now, what we do is, if we can get 51 votes and we can claim that it's that this type of legislation is actually this type of legislation so we're going to evade the filibuster uh, we're gonna do this then we can go ahead and get it in and then the Republicans will come in and just undo all of it and it'll it'll bounce back and forth all of the time uh, and and so I think that that is a, a very big problem and I it will, will make governance difficult until we figure out how to actually get around it
0: and the largest problem is it makes governance difficult but it makes fundraising really easy and explosive Ugh. right because, yes because there's boy is there like if you can just forever for an entire career say i need your money because we've got a pass blah and then right you uh, the tides turn the other guys, they've been raising money of we got to repeal blur. They eventually get in, they repeal blur and then you can raise money again saying mm-hmm. we got to put blur back in. Like this is- A hundred percent.
2: And there's there's structural elements too, not not even just the, the bipartisan um, like kind of bag element to that. I mean, there, there's there's direct structural incentives there. So if you go back to 19, let's say 1960, um, 1960 parties weren't that, powerful in Congress. In Congress, the state delegations were still somewhat powerful, but really the committees were the big drivers of legislation. Yeah. Committees had immense power. Um, starting in around 1970, the Democratic Party goes, we don't really like this. We, we don't like how much autonomy these sort of a- almost barons have, these these rogue chairs of the party, because they're just selected at that time based on seniority. So if you are a Robert Byrd type character, you're, a prog- you're You're whoever you are, if you're out of sync with the party, but you're just old, you're able to do whatever you want with impunity, and so they scrap that system and get rid of it. And then Gingrich comes into the '90s from the Republican side, and truly just salts the earth with that system. G- Gingrich makes everything just your your chairmanship is directly related to your loyalty to the chair. So he's yeah. putting in like fresh freshman congressmen as the chairs of things, right? And the thought process at the time was we're 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 going to have a more meritocratic system where you're selected based on your competency rather than your seniority which i get but what that is functionally turned into and demonstrably is at this point is your chairmanship on a committee is derived from your ability to raise money from the party Again, we talked about earlier, 80 percent of districts, congressional districts and, and, and Senate seats in the country aren't competitive. So who are these people raising money for? They're not doing it for themselves. They don't need to worry about it. They, they, there's nothing relentless about that for them. They, they can do just kind of moderate fundraising and be fine. But they're not. They're raising it for the party. Yeah. As a result of that, they get the chairmanship. And so there, there's this uh, perverse incentive to be fundraising for all of this stuff like that. I, I wish more people would pick up on that because I think that is such a better place to start with campaign finance reform. Than, than just you know beating Citizens United over the head over and over again. It, it's, it's something that wouldn't require a constitutional amendment. It's something you could do in-house. It's also something that I think you'd find really interesting players on. Like I, what I just described, I'll bet you if you got Justin Amash and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the same room, they would probably have similar thoughts on this and might actually, if Amash were still in, in the House, might actually like organize. like I can, I can see AOC being a really – who I'm usually extremely critical of i could see her being a force for good in that regard and like that that is something that could be done but it would require it would require members of the house to do it
0: yeah and and i don't know if the house as a deliberative body has much of a role beyond trying to get on television because there's so much power uh, uh corralled around pelosi and and mm-hmm. kevin mccarthy it's like like just leadership is the only thing that happens and and we just saw this with COVID relief over the last uh, year, basically that like the, the, the negotiations were not between the hundreds of people in the house or the hundred people in the Senate. It was between Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, and yeah. sometimes Trump. Right. And, and this time right. it was literally just Pelosi. I mean, I guess the, this version with reconciliation had to deal more with the kind of granularity of uh of the 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 body politic in the house and senate but only because they were going to exclude one party <laughs> like they were mm. they were going to go completely inside and at that point they have to you know especially in the senate make sure that all 50 senators vote their way
2: yeah it yes uh, i think i think the speaker and the majority floor leader have become Far more powerful. I mean, you you look at say like uh, uh, I'm trying to get John Burko on the podcast. Don't think I'm going to be able to. But John Burko's is the former um, speaker of the House of Commons in the United Kingdom. I worked for him for like a week. I didn't get fired, by the way. I was just a temp employee. Yeah. Uh, but I, I would I would love to interview him. And like you think, but their speaker is truly just a referee. That's it. Yeah. They're, they're, that, that's what their speaker is doing. Our speaker is the, the the head of the legislative body, in effect, or at least the head of that that house, and are, are really powerful. And you you combine sort of. Failing, uh, failing institutional norms and institutional strength with perverse incentives, with uh, the, the way the power is, is sort of coagulated in the House and the Senate. And you get a situation where your, your best case for capital and advancement in your career as a congressman is to be a show horse and to, to get on TV as much as you can. Uh, and and I, I feel like a lot of congressmen, and I can think of a few of them that work on a network I used to work on, um, <laughs> appear, to, appear, appear to just be basically trying out to become a, a television personality. They've got their platform now. Their, their congressional stake is a platform that they're promoting themselves with, and they're doing it by accumulating attention. And they're sort of doing a tryout to see if they can become a very lucrative pundit. And, uh that's not a good situation so I mean, that, so, that is that is that is yeah. the old
0: the old scarborough highway basically right
2: yes exactly and i i would I think like um I hate to say this because i kind of like c-span but I, I think we need to get rid of uh we need to get rid of televisions in, in Congress I think I think we need to have transcripts um because we should definitely have no, access no no you can't rhetoric, put
0: that genie back in the bottle like like we, we <sighs> the, the, the 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 what we need is more not less we need to we need to make the noise so loud that any signal is hard to 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 go through it because it never goes the other way. You can never say, "And now we're we're gonna have less coverage of this because people will just get around it." And and yeah,
2: you're probably right. They just you just have your intern come in with a cell phone and and well, report you. and even
0: or on, yeah. or you just have the narratives kind of be built on their own social media, like like we saw with the. Um, you know Elizabeth Warren and the like. Right. Nevertheless, yeah. she persisted and everything. It's like right. everybody is playing their own game. Everybody is is building their own mythology and there, you know, are are safe places where you can air your points of view uh, uh, politically. Like liberals have MSNBC and CNN, and Republicans have Fox News, or mm-hmm. you can do it with no gatekeeper. On your social media, and and you can spit the full gospel as long or as short as you want to your faithful. I think the 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 question then becomes: Well, as we are slowly sort of returning to Earth post the delirium, the four year berserker rage that uh, we were in with Trump, is there any more expectation? is there any more, where is this leading? Is there any more, well, why don't you deliver on on stuff? If everybody got really fired up about $15 minimum wage and it didn't happen, are there consequences to it?
2: No, there aren't. That's another thing. I've got, so uh, coming up on my program, I'm interviewing a lady called Catherine Gale. She's the author of The Politics Industry. And uh, she strikes me as very non or at least non-ideological. I think she's, she's, uh, really coming at it from an outsider observer, but I don't think she's in the libertarian camp or the democratic camp or anything like that. And, but she's really focused on incentives and structural elements to politics. And one of the points in the book that I read that I thought was really interesting is that if you are a, if you and I are working for Pepsi and, and we're both Pepsi managers, you know, and, and, and I am increasing sales and I'm lowing overhead and you just constantly talk about how much you hate Coca-Cola and you have lots of social media about how much you hate Coca-Cola at the end of the year when they're dealing out promotions, they're just going to look at my sales and go, great. Heaton clearly did better. We don't really care how, how committed, uh, Justin Robert Young is to the the Pepsi narrative and how much he despises the enemy Coca-Cola company. Like you don't have that with politics. Like politics, there's no, there's no way to do that where you can go, uh, wow, Amy Klobuchar got in—you know—15% more amendments than any other senator. She really must be doing a great job. We ought to give her a, an increased chairmanship. And and like, it, it doesn't—it doesn't work that way. Um, there's there, and and you also can't accumulate capital, like I and I don't I don't think that you should run government as a business. It's a separate qualitative phenomenon. So I, I don't think that you ought to. But it is interesting for comparative purposes. If if I'm a business and I I have excess profit. I can I can get that as a paycheck I can give it to uh, my you know the, the the stockholders I can reinvest it. you can't you can't bank excess votes that's it's just not the same thing right if I get 60% of the votes, it's not like I can take those nine extra percentage points and save them for next time. That doesn't work that way right So there's these different these different uh, incentive structures in politics that are increasingly pushing people towards, playing to the base, being evocative, being passionate and getting attention. And none of these things, none of these things are good for governance or rationally constructing policies, which is, I think, what America is kind of going, getting mad about. I certainly am.
0: Well, you don't need to get mad listening to the dulcet tones of Andrew Heaton. That's for sure. (laughs) Including on his podcast, The Political Orphanage. Uh, uh, Anything else that you got cooking now?
2: Um, no, that's the main thing. I check out the political orphanage. Uh, and, uh, I've got, uh, I've got, you know, cool guests coming up. Like I said, Catherine Gale will be on this week. So, uh, here when I got sidetracked, that's because why, cause I'm focusing on that, but, uh, um, come check it out. If you check out the minimum wage episode, I also get a little bit into Nordic models, uh, which we didn't talk about on today's program, but suffice it to say, uh, in the, um, Nordic countries, they tend to have a more robust social safety net, more higher taxes, but they have much lower regulations. So when it comes to minimum wage, Denmark, Scandinavia, uh, uh, Switzerland have no national statutory minimum wage. They have basically collective bargaining between unions and employers, which I think is a way smarter way to do all of this. So anyway, if you, if you want to give like, you an outside perspective.
0: We're, I feel uh, like me and you just need to figure out a thing. Get some wealthy benefactor that whenever you hear people just start throwing around, well, Nordic countries do this and Nordic countries do that we need to just organize like, like our own version of birthright Israel or something like that, where we just send people over there for two weeks. Like just, Oh, that sounds
2: great. I'd like I I, love that. Yeah, I know. I would because I'm sure that there's stuff that I got wrong too. I mean, not necessarily about what I just said, but just in general, like where I'm sure I'd go over and like, "Well, actually, our environmental regulations are more strict than your environment, or whatever the thing is." Right? We're gonna have to change.
0: To we're, we're gonna have to change the names though, because I I don't think that having a bunch of people yeah. called birthright <laughs> for the Nordic countries is going what to if, necessarily go over well. But what if, we, what if
2: we call well, it? uh the uh, Northern European White Pride Heritage Foundation or something uh, like that? Isn't a that, workshop.
0: That a workshop. No. No, 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 no bad, no bad, uh, no bad ideas in the brainstorm. Uh, uh, and there's no bad episodes of the political orphanage. Thanks to Andrew Heaton. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. And that will wrap it up for us today. I want to thank our guest, Andrew Heaton, for joining us. Thank the man. Won't you? Head on over on Twitter. The easiest free way that you can support us is by supporting the people that come on our show at Mighty Heaton. At Mighty Heaton on Twitter. You can send us an email to the show, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can hit us up uh, on on Twitter ourselves at PX3 Tweets. You can find my live streams three days a week at px3live.com. You can get to our newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com or px3newsletter.com, and you can share our podcast, px3podcast.com. You can uh, support us directly with uh, uh, monetary contributions, and trust me, moving into... I'm in closing on this house, man. Good God. What a screw job. Anyway, PayPal is paypal.me slash payjury. My Venmo is uh, uh justin-young-20. And by the way, thanks to the king. The king. I'm going to get his name right. Uh, uh Thomas who gave me a dollar and then asked me, "Hey, can you please put a picture of PX3 when when uh, on your Venmo so we just know that that this is actually you. It is actually me, uh justin-young-20. Give me a dollar." Give me a dollar on Venmo. Venmo money isn't real. We all know that. Hit me up on Cash App, PX3 Cash. And of course, anything you'd like to send to me physically, you can do so at P.O. Box 10853, Oakland, California, 94610. And by the way, if you would like access to the premium content that we have through our Patreon, by way of a one-time contribution or you'd like to donate in a way that I haven't read, please reach out to me directly at theyoungamerican at gmail.com and we'll figure something out. Finally, takepoliticsseriously.com is the place where you get your exclusive content. It's also the place where you become part of the Titanic. $10 Ten dollar tier, including headphones. Neil, Doctor G, the other half of Whiskey Wednesday. Jason, the credit card a hole. Idris, the government unfiltered podcast. Hundred Mile Runner. Jacob Wilson. Berkeley. Stephen. Kathy Mac. Zombie Doc. D. Really? Meth- Methuselah. Honeythuckle. The Gen, Middle-Aged Mike, Cujo, Junkie, Calamity Zap, D-Laser, Lord Scale, De Quincey, the Third and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, as well as Snuffies on Route 44, Alex, Archie, Olin and Angela. DL, Chad, Miranda, Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Richard, just another pilot, Jim, Frozen Summers, Jay Pink, and Andrew. You want your name right at the end of the show? You want your name right at the beginning of the show? You want the bonus content? You head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. We got an interview coming up on Friday about Q. I've been looking for a good Q guest, and I think we finally got one. So that will be coming up uh, at the end of the week. Till then, this is your old pal, Justin Robert Young saying, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics. But this, this is the only show that Dave's discuss oh uh. <laughs>